You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Thank you very much, Julia. I'm delighted to be here this morning for the first, uh, I think, what the communists used to call a plenary session, which means you're all here together, um, with uh, three uh, newly published or about to be published authors. I, on the face of it, each very different, but you know our task here is to find connections where they might not uh, immediately be obvious. So uh, my first guest uh, is uh, Professor Ian Goldin, uh, a very distinguished uh, economist and uh, uh, development economist, specialist in development econo- e- economist and economic reform. Uh, he is director of the Oxford Martin School, which is a leading, uh, perhaps the leading, cross-disciplinary research uh, center into future issues such as health and medicine, uh, energy and the environment, technology, society, ethics, and government. Uh, he uh, is uh, about to, or just published, I think maybe this very week, uh, his 16th book called Divided Nations, Why Global Governance is Failing, and the Solution, What We Can Do About It. And we're going to hear about that in a moment. Uh, You will also have an opportunity to uh, hear him uh, if you're in London at the LSE uh, this Wednesday, Wednesday evening, uh, talking about this uh, subject. So um, we we haven't come across, our paths have not really crossed before, but I did read in his uh, Wikipedia entry um, that he was once, he's a past global leader of tomorrow. the World Economic Forum. And I'm also a past global leader of tomorrow, but I, don't, I never became a global leader, but Ian is clearly a global leader in policy issues and development. So over to you, Ian, please. Thank you. Thanks very much, Stephen. And it's wonderful to be in a place like this and very easy to imagine um, that this is the best time to be alive. It feels just so extraordinary to be with a group of such incredible connected people. And of course, this is the best time in human history to be alive. Uh, life expectancy is improving at such a remarkable rate. While you up here uh, for about 48 hours say your life expectancy will increase by an average of about eight hours. Uh, just don't drink too much of those wonderful wines. It's the best time to be born poor. The chances of escaping poverty uh, are greater than ever in human history. And this is because of connection. This is because the walls have come down. This is because the world and we all are more connected than ever in history. It's really the falling of the Berlin Wall, the opening up of about 80 societies around the world, uh, and the increasing ability of people to absorb and find out new ideas and share ideas that is the most radical change the world has ever known. This is the new renaissance. It's like the old Renaissance in that revolution of the Gutenberg press and the spreading of people and ideas led to leapfrogging. And of course, the question of this time is, will we have the Renaissance outcome? That was a disaster in many respects. In economic terms, it wasn't even a blip in a historical process in terms of progress. Bonfire of the vanities, terrible inquisitions, destruction of humanity, the mass production of slavery, many other things came from that. We need to do much better. We need to ensure that our connectiveness leads to a more effective management of our societies. That we learn through connectiveness not only how to be faster 
and smarter, but also somehow wiser. That we learn about our common humanity by being connected. And I think the jury's still out as to whether we have learned this or not. We're certainly learning a lot of things. The advances are remarkable. This will be the period and is the period of the most rapid innovation history has ever known. There's a debate on this, but I'm absolutely convinced we will see an acceleration of this innovation. We all have fragments of genius and capabilities in our heads and in our knowledge bases. And when you connect this, even if we can't all be geniuses, but there are many more out there that are being released, we will come up with remarkable new ideas. New things which hopefully will improve our lives. But one of the tragedies is that not everyone is sharing in this connectiveness. There are about two billion people out there that are disconnected. Their problem is not that they're too globalized. Their problem is they're not globalized enough. They're not connected to the things that we've learned that are making us richer, making us live longer, and improving our lives. Whether it's washing your hands to spread, stop spreading disease, or whether it's access to education, medicine, or anything else that is improving all of our lives. And so one big challenge, of course, is how do we ensure that globalization is an inclusive process. And the evidence now is that it's becoming more and more uneven, leading to growing inequality, and those that have captured the benefits of connectivity are doing much better while many others are falling behind. And this is happening within societies as well as between societies. So a challenging, desperate issue. Many of the things that come out of connectiveness lead us to be able to do things in ways which were unimaginable before, physically and virtually. And that's why our health has improved, and that's why we're able to live in big cities which bring food and water, and over half the world's population is now urbanized. It's because we can connect and manage these connections and build these extraordinary nodes, these hubs of connectivity, like the great cities. But these great hubs and the airports associated with them and the transport vectors and the internet and everything else are also the source of the instability. And so we have this extraordinary paradox. The more connected we are, the stronger we are, the better we are, and yet the more vulnerable we are, the more quickly things can fall apart. Connectiveness is also about complexity. It's also about systemic risk. It's about the cascade that can move through all of us, the amplification of small things that spread. And what we saw in the financial crisis was the first of the connected systemic crises of the 21st century. That is the 21st century structure of disconnectedness arising from connectedness. This duel where things fall apart because we're too connected. We still don't really know what caused the financial crisis. There are lots of great books out there and great people thinking about it. But what's extraordinary is when you read the congressional testimony by Hank Paulson, who had been the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, and many of us had big reservations about him going to become the Treasury Secretary. We thought there's a conflict of interest, but we thought he'd understand banking. And what he says in the testimony is we did not know what was happening. And that's because the system has become so complex and there are so many actors that it's very difficult to know what's going on. This isn't a lack of data. It's not understanding the data. In fact, finance is the best data set there is in the world. It's the most joined up governance system, the most powerful system. It is the elite of global governance. And this elite were unfit for 21st century purpose. All 
the global governance institutions are even more unfit. They fossilized. They stuck in paradigms of the post-war period. And so the biggest challenge of our time is how do we manage collectively? There are many more of us, and what's rational for individuals is not rational for the collective. We need to accept that connectivity means collectivity. It means an ability to manage together. And we, if we cannot accept that at the nation-state level and the global level, we cannot accelerate our connectivity. An individual fisherman fishing out here in this wonderful ocean is doing a rational thing, feeding themselves and their family, and when many more do it, they're building the UK economy. But we know when they all do it, and the Canadians do it, and they have increasing technologies, that the cod disappear, as has happened out here. No more. We know that individual rationality does not sum to collective rationality. When we all take our antibiotics, it keeps us alive. It's great. When we all take them, we get antibiotic resistance becoming a massive new crisis. And so it is with climate. We heat ourselves, we drive around, we come here, we feel good, we all do it. We have climate disaster. And so it is too with all technologies which are dual use. The things that we learn, and sometimes they're long leads and lags. It's taken us 200 years to realize what fossil fuel does. But we do know that DNA sequencing, for example, will be a connector. We will understand our bodies, our health will improve through it. But people on the internet can pick the sequences up and build new biopathogens and kill us all. So how do we manage this? I believe we need to use this collective, this collective understanding to build a collective consciousness. We need to understand that unless we can go beyond ourselves, empathize with others, understand what is happening, and understand that our individual actions actually don't have rational good outcomes, we will not be able to manage this. So we're at a crossroads. We can carry on being connected, moving ahead, advancing extremely rapidly. There will be two billion new middle-class consumers, and of course, everyone in developing countries have the rights that we do to drive cars, to heat their homes, to have their microwaves and their computers, and we can destroy the planet, and things will fall apart. Because hyperconnectivity leads to growing complexity that we cannot manage and systemic risks that will cascade. Or we can use this connectivity to realize that we can solve our problems together. We can find ways of managing the planet because we are connected. So I'm hoping that we can use this connectivity to navigate a perfect storm that's coming. The perfect storm as the old superpowers hand over leadership in the world to the new but there's a total vacuum in the process. The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, are not yet ready to lead. The G20 is a laugh. It's a photo op. It is not a global management system. So we need to ensure that we accelerate our capabilities, that we all say to our government, you have a responsibility which goes beyond our shores. Everything that happens in the UK that's meaningful for our future will come from across our borders. The idea that we can stop being connected, that we can become xenophobic, nationalist, protectionist, and somehow stop connectivity is a most dangerous myth. Scotland can leave the UK, the UK can leave Europe. This is not going to resolve any of the challenges that face our society in the future. It's only by being more connected, but a connection that also is a giving. A giving of political empowerment, a giving to our societies that we have to share 
and ability to manage the planet. That's what connectiveness, I believe, is about. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. You've raised uh, a lot of uh, very interesting issues there, some very big ones. Of course, the tragedy of the commons was uh, central to what you've just said. And so we'll come back to that in a moment. We'll have the next two um, addresses, and then I'd like to open it up to discussion with the audience. I can see, I could see a lot of heads, well, a number of heads nodding vigorously there, uh, others looking perhaps puzzled, others wondering what the solution is. So I'd now like to uh, introduce uh, Lucy Lethbridge, something maybe completely different, maybe there are things in common, um, who is um, a writer, a journalist, uh, very uh, versatile, as I discovered uh, just walking back from the cinema this morning. Um, I, I thought she was just an author of children's books who's uh, just published uh, uh, an extremely well-reviewed uh, book on uh, domestic service, but I also learnt that she was a correspondent for the tablet. Uh, so, if you've got any questions on the Pope, please take <laughs> this opportunity. Um, and an arts journalist in New York, and so on. Um, the, just a couple of quotes from two reviews that I read over the weekend. In the, um, the Spectator described her book as empathetic, wide-ranging, and it will enthrall. The Financial Times said, scholarly, thorough, and vastly entertaining, elegantly detached, and slyly witty. And that's, uh, I'm sure, reflects Lucy's own personality. Lucy, please. Thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking a lot over the last day in the Names Not Numbers uh, forum about the way that technology has enabled relationships to be formed across continents, thousands of miles away, this extraordinary uh, ability we now have to connect with people that we have never met in different countries of totally different cultures. And I want to talk about another persistent um, and ever with us relationship, which is absolutely unmediated by technology, and that's the relationship of domestic service, of employees and uh, employers living together in the space of the private home, the sealed space that is where we guard our privacy. The privacy that we worry about uh, in technology is, is the place where we meet with strangers, often from the other side of the world, increasingly now migrant workers, um, and we meet there in this extraordinary, I think, uh, sort of moment where, um, you know, human beings have a kind of visceral relationship across class, um, and uh, I think it is one of the most important relationships nowadays that we have. Um, it's a, a, a growing economic force. Um, in his commentaries on the laws of England in the 18th century, Sir William Blackstone described the relationship between master and servant in common law as the first relationship of man. He ranked it above the relationships of marriage, of family, and of filial duty. We no longer live in the sprawling, flex flexible, open kind of households that they had in the 18th century. But in our more atomized society, where privacy is guarded, others come into the space that is our home and 
they, and we face each other in that space. So on the one hand, you have an employer who wants uh, help with the most valuable things in their lives, the ch their children, their elderly relatives, even their valuable things and their home, their space. And on, on the other, you have the often lonely, uh, very often now migrant um, worker, struggling for visibility, I think, um, uh, economically disadvantaged. This is a relationship about work, about freedom, about family, um, and above all, it's about class. Oh, and feminism, of course. But it, above all, it is about class. Um, the 19th century saw the separation of the house into constituent parts when labour and the family became gradually divided. Um, the sort of sprawling households of the 18th century were separated. Um, and these long wings and corridors appeared in Victorian houses where uh, servants were sort of shuffled off into into kitchens and servants' quarters and hailed by bells. You've got development of a rather the sort of primitive technology that drew people from one side of the house to the other. Um, and flamboyantly dressed footmen, for example, had once set the fashion for upper-class London dandies. But in the new middle-classness of the Victorian home, servants had to look like servants. There had to be a separation. And livery became uniform. The labour of everyday living was shunted away Work was invisible. Maids tiptoed up and down back stairs wearing shoes that didn't squeak and aprons and mob caps that made them indistinguishable from each other. I think we still live with the legacy of that separation. Of course, we, in, in externals, we don't. But I think eternally the labour of the house has become uh, associated with such a, a, a loss of status that it has been completely separated from us. Um, it's a relationship, a domestic connection, employer and employee in the house, I think, that is far more complex, more intimate and strange than the more straightforward ones found in other lines of work. The rules of engagement are very difficult, um, and they are often embarrassing, often uncomfortable. I've trawled through countless stories of service over the 20th century, personal testaments from both employees and employers, Sometimes employers vaguely think they were friends with their servants. Most servants know, as the employers know secretly, that of course they weren't. And there are recurrent themes. Most interesting to me was the particularly British reluctance to give up on all that servants represented. We have lagged years behind America in Europe in developing new domestic technologies and labour-saving devices. In the 30s, Jewish refugee maids were astounded by our dark and dismal houses with their conspicuous lack of modern amenities. And behind this reluctance to relinquish the notion of servants that was typical until the Second World War is a romantic view of the pyramid of class, characterised by a pinnacle, the benevolent aristocracy on the top, and underpinned by a broad supportive base of dependent menials. I think of this as the ideal village of the English mythical imagination, a kind of perfect squirearchy, the manor house, the church, the artisan's cottage, every person in their degree. It is an English vision of divine order, and it's pr proved a remarkably resilient global brand for modern Britain, sold all over the world as Downton Abbey, Upstairs, Downstairs, Agatha Christie has it. Um, it's what the American economist uh, Thorsten Veblen called in 1892 a sublime pantomime of mastery on the one hand and subvert subservience on the other. 
With this mob cap and Urangmalord view of domestic service always bobbing along in the back of our cultural imagination, there is still some confusion, usually re repressed, as to where exactly we sit with the idea of domestic labour. I mean, nowadays, British, to, to find a British domestic labourer would be quite difficult. Um, uh, and most of our, our domestic labour force is migrant. Um, there are British domestic uh, servants, but they are usually exported now at, at, uh, on vast salaries to the Middle East and to America and to Russia, and particularly China. They're very in, in favour as ladies' maids or as white-glove butlers. It's the Downton effect, I think. Um, it's a confusion we've been working out for almost a century, as shown by Violet Firth's Psychology of the Servant Problem, which was written in 1925 and is astonishingly radical. Um, Firth, who was a theosophist, occultist, psychoanalyst, founder member of the Fraternity of the Inner Light, and author of The Goatfoot God, clearly an all-round beacon of common sense, um, wrote a short polemic inspired by her years of war work as a gardener in a big house in the, world, in the First War. She examined what lay and still lies behind the intractable, in inexplicable problem of what domestic service means to those who have to perform it. She recognised crucially that what made service so difficult to regulate and to legislate for was the hazy nature of the relationships of the home. Her book was a call to women of all classes for domestic work to be regarded without sentimentality. She looked forward, she said, to a time when the home help might freely choose a husband from the family she serves. The servant problem, as she saw it, was not one of demand outstripping um, supply or of a failure of quality of service, but of deeply held attitudes about class, of unexamined habits masquerading as unbreachable social certainties. It's difficult to make cleaning seem more than menial, and yet we almost always do it. The grate no longer needs blacking, fires don't need laying, but there is labour in everyday living, as anyone who has ever lived knows. Even our commonest conveniences, modern conveniences, are underpinned by the invisible work of someone, somewhere, maybe thousands of miles away. Who bags that your pre-washed salad, for example? Who makes the meal you put in the microwave? Domestic service has gone global with the traffic of migrant workers, um, from the third world coming to work in the homes of the first. The freedoms, therefore, of the first world women are facilitated by the serv servitude of third world ones. It's still a bit of a fudge. Perhaps it always will be. The style of the relationship may have changed, but a fundamental uneasiness remains about our relationship to domestic labour. It's for the most part still poorly paid, given the value we place on it, and, and, and low in status. We try, we may be on first-name terms with our domestic staff, but it doesn't always make for equality, and often that sort of attitude actually simply further entrenches inequality. Okay, my third guest uh, is uh, the founder of what's described as the notorious Shoreditch House Literary Salon. Uh, I, I can't uh, vouch for that because I've never, never been to it, and I'm not sure why it should be notorious, but perhaps um, Damien's going to um, exhibit that today. But he um, is also described, uh, well, he's a writer and a playwright and, and, and a salonier. Um, and that's, um, that's the first time, actually, I've ever come across this word. And um, so I'm looking forward to see what a salonier 
is. Um, Salonia is usually hungover, I have to say, <laughs> and, and, and is this morning, yeah. so. So, uh, and, uh, but he uh, is, uh, has just brought, just about to bring out, I think it's May, actually, this, your book is coming out, and it's called Maggie and Me, and he, uh, in which he writes about his early life through the prism of um, Margaret Thatcher, or at least a detached Margaret Thatcher, through, and I think I listened to this extraordinary um, description on one of these uh, salons with, uh, in which one of his earliest memories is, is watching television with his mother in some ghastly Glasgow bedsit. Um, with Ma uh, Margaret Hall. Thatcher emerging. <laughs> what was it? Was it Glasgow? Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> the Gorbals, yeah. Um, Helena Kennedy's the Gorbals. For you. I'm the small town outside yeah. Glasgow. <laughs> anyway. So Margaret Thatcher's emerging from the Grand Hotel, you know, with Dustin almost, you know, just missed being killed, and the mother is sitting in the chair smoking a fag and uh, wishing that she had died. And, Damien, little Damien there, having rather mixed feelings about this. But anyway, um, I'm not going to take your thunder. I couldn't. So over to you, Damien. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so I was going to stand to do this reading until um, I was put in a house with another Scotsman and a bottle of whiskey. Um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to be sitting down... Um, um, and really channeling the, the, the spirit of my salon in all sorts of ways. I'm going to do something that we haven't had um, so far. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a reading um, um, for my book. Here we are. Which, um, which is edited by the lovely Alexandra Pringle, so it's not at all intimidating to have my editor sitting there uh, in the front row. Um, so I, I just want to say a wee bit about it um, bef before I read from it. Um, everybody in this room has had a relationship with Margaret Thatcher, whether they like it or not. Um, and in my case, it's a very conflicted relationship. I never got the chance to vote from her, for her or against her or not for her, but everybody in this room had a chance to vote for her. Um, I'm sure David Davis probably thought she was marvellous, um, um, Maggie Hambling hated her so much she refused to paint her. Kirsty Lang interviewed her, found her surprisingly lovely. Um, Deb Lee over there started her business with an enterprise allowance uh, from her. Um, so she's touched lots of lives. Um, she fucked my life up. Um, but she did also make it possible for me to build another life for myself. Um, and so I have a kind of grudging admiration for her um, and it's that that I explore in this book, um, kind of the difficulty of loving her and hating her at the same time, but just not really being able to get away from her. Um, I'm not a Tory. It's important to say that. Um, but I am a Thatcherite. Um, so anyway, here we go, the beginning. It's the 12th of October, 1984. I'm just eight years old. Me and my mum are stuck to the BBC nine o'clock news in this strange new flat. We sit cross-legged on bare floorboards with coats for cushions and watch ambulances, police cars and fire engines, me maw, me maw, in black and white on the portable balancing on top of a tea chest. A flurry of dusty black bits fluttered out when I helped my mum turn this upside down and I thought tea only came in bags until this morning when the removal van came to take us to flat one, number one, Magdalene Drive, Carfin. My dad is back at 25 Ardgar Place, Newark Hill, with the big colour telly. My wee sister Teenie has cried herself to sleep in my mum's lap. Our old life is crammed in the cardboard boxes bursting all around us. It's way past my bedtime, but rules are already being broken. 
My mum lifts an arm so I can snuggle in. She lights a regal cigarette and shakes her head at the telly, tutting and pulling me closer. I can't get close enough. Blue smoke cloaks us. Luck of the devil, she huffs, puffing away at the telly, where this blonde woman rises from rubble again and again, like a cyberman off Doctor Who. All around her, the hotel is collapsing as bloody bodies are pulled out, but she stays calm. She's talking to the BBC with a man's voice, and even the police stop to listen. Life must go on as usual, she insists, as if life will do exactly what she tells it. (laughs) Shit Disney burn Maggie won't, says my mum, smoking at the television, puffing extra fast, super deep like it's a race. I look up at her with questioning eyes. We shouldn't be here. He doesn't like them. Cancer sticks, he calls them, she confides, smoothing Teenie's blonde bobbed hair with her free hand, her nails chewed to nothing. He is Logan, and according to all the arguments I've overheard, he's the man my mum is leaving my dad for. Right now, he's asleep in the next room, because plumbers start early. We're not to wake him. He was waiting for us in the empty flat when we arrived with all our boxes, Not as tall as my dad, but not as short as my mum, he stood totally still, filling every room so we could hardly breathe. Without a word, he handed her a key, then pushed his face into hers. The Waynes, she whispered, blushing and shuffling. He looked down at Teeny, then me, his mouth open, lips red like the inside of a cut. I held her hand tight, and all the lines round everything sharpened. I breathed right in. So I see, he said, slowly, before whipping a Stanley knife from the pocket of his blue boiler suit and slashing the top of a box. I'm Logan. The telly was first to get unpacked. The news was already on when Logan plucked it in. He thumped it hard just once, and the picture cleared to show Maggie walking away from the bombed hotel. He shook his head and changed the channel, but there she was again. Nine hours of unpacking later, and the news is still on, and Maggie's still not dead. (laughs) He can't believe it. Neither can my mum. They hate her, and they say she hates Scotland, hates us. But all the people on the BBC seem glad she made it. Secretly, I am too. I don't want to see her dead. I don't know why. Maybe just because everybody else does. She's not done anything to me. I'd like to brush the dust from her big blonde hair like she's a girl's world and tell her it'll all be all right. Gay kid. Of course, I can't admit this. Bitch, I say, the worst word I know, and flinch for a scalp. But my mum says nothing, not even a, God forgive you. So I'm allowed to swear about Maggie. That's how bad she is. My mum takes one last puff. I don't want her to go and sleep in that bed with him. I close my eyes as she drops her cigarette, hissing into the dregs of a cuppa, and imagine celebrating Maggie's miraculous escape with the shiny, rich-looking people on the tally. The Grand Hotel survives. So does Maggie. So will I. Okay, so now we're going to open up for questions from the floor. We've got three, uh, I guess, three types of connectedness. We've talked about uh, Professor Golden talking about using connectedness to address some of the great issues in health, technology, and environment that confront us. We've got the connection between the domestic, intimate servant and, and employer, and we've got that closeness and, and connection between you and um, Mrs. Thatcher, or... 
So, uh, let's, yes, at the back there, please. If you'd just like to say who you are and before uh, you ask uh, your question. Thank questions. you. It's, it's Stevie Spring, and actually it's a, it's a question aimed predominantly at Lucy, but comes out of something that Ian said um, when we're looking at, certainly in the Western world, um, increasingly extended lives. I'm interested to know if increasingly domestic service is less about class and class distinction and more about dependence and independence. And, and I wonder whether Lucy has a perspective on whether the rules are different in that case in, in the ultimate intimacy of having to manage a personal assistant when one is disabled in the broadest sense. Well, I think that class is about dependence and independence. I mean, I don't think those two are, are necessarily separated. Um, that, I mean, the dependence I talked about, the sort of ideal village idea of the servanthood Edwardian house was uh, an idea of dependency often viewed as benevolent, but was essentially about, about a, an abs a, a class structure that was designed to be absolutely rigid. So I think that, um, in that sense, yes, I think it is still about class. It's about uh, economic disadvantage and loss of status and, and um, dependency. Um, but I'm not quite sure what you meant. This, the second part of your question about the, disa uh, the disablement aspect... Sorry, what I meant by that was the rules of engagement when one has the intimacy of having people living with you sort of full-time, full-service in a, an, an economic disadvantage, in a, in a class disparity versus a proper physical dependence and the types of intimacy that one has to deal with with disability, age, Oh, I see, yes, I see what you mean. Um, well, this is, is fast becoming the commonest kind of modern service is the is the carer. I mean, that is the... Uh, I mean, increasingly, as people live alone, they live for a very long time, they live in their own homes. I mean, the carer is the new form of sort of uh, global service. Carers particularly coming, I think, from South Africa at the moment. And, um, yes, there is a very particular kind of intimacy there. And it is very difficult to regulate it. It's very difficult to... Uh, um, regulate the agencies that supply it because of course it's a relationship that um, can go wrong for all sorts of reasons that are outside any rules that could possibly be drawn up because you know if you, if you wish to submit to someone every day uh, whose job is to bath you uh, no, no, set, no kind of interviewing technique could really pick up in one go whether that person is, is, is going to feel right and um, that's, so yes, it is difficult. Can I just yeah. recommend a book, uh, Me Before You, um, by Jojo Moyes, which is all about a relationship between a carer um, and, and, a, and a young man. Uh, but the young man's quite rich and in a very sort of, has had a very high-flying life and has been brought low by this condition. And this woman is brought in to look after him and there begins this relationship, which is all about the levels and dynamics of power that you're talking about. And it doesn't end like you would expect at all. And it's a brilliant book. So I always prescribe books for any sort of given social situation. Now, Lucy, you made this point about the, the, the labour force, uh, the 
the, if you like, the domestic serv service, if you, labor force that exists today in this country is largely, if not almost entirely, migrant. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I noticed, um, Ian, that you wrote a book a couple of years ago on how migration shaped the world. And I wondered if you had a perspective on that that you could share with us. Yeah. Um, that, that book's called Exceptional People. Uh, because these people are exceptional in, in all sorts of respects. Um, but it, where I see this going is uh, in, for the next 20 years or so, we're going to have rapidly increasing life expectancies, uh, but very little progress on neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and dementia. Uh, and so vast increases in caring relationships uh, of all sorts for elderly people. At the same time, fertility is collapsing, not in the UK, but in most other countries, um, and so rapidly declining workforces. So we're going to get massive movements of people to satisfy these demands, and, um, and the relationships will change in the process. But I think the things you, you're highlighting are absolutely brilliant for us to think about. Um, there's also apparently a new French movie which is about this relationship. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it's called. Amour. Amour, yeah. 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 Untouchable, yeah, oh, which right. apparently is very good on this as well. Yeah. 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 Okay, so um, questions from the audience. Uh, Andrew, I, Andrew Keane, who was in the session I was with earlier, I saw you nod, nodding vigorously when um, Professor Golden was talking, and I wasn't sure whether that was agreement, because I've rarely seen you agree with anybody, but <laughs> I, was... I thought it was good, uh, it was very good, but uh, um, what, what, what was your tagline, Con connectivity leads to collectivity? Were you being serious? No, I mean, that, that's not what it does, that's my wish. Um, so it, you it, want it... us to be more collective? But this, well, I, I thought I, this I... thing was about individuality in a mass age. Yeah, what, what I'm saying, I mean, and that's, you know, that's the, the underscore of names, not numbers. What I'm saying is in, uh, individuality is fine, but it's going to lead to collectively disastrous outcomes. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and uh, that's true at the nation-state level, uh, where divided nations will not be able to manage their own affairs. And it's true, I believe, in our own lives as well. But what, what does that actually... So you're saying that we should have less individuality? Well, I think we've got But what does that actually mean? I believe we've got to balance uh, our individual creativity, which I think is absolutely wonderful, and lots of individual things that are happening uh, around the world. Indeed, what, what the technologies are doing is amplifying our individuality. I think we've got to balance that with an acceptance that we have to subjugate our individuality to things uh, which are necessary because we need very different outcomes to manage the world and to manage the future of the planet. Whether it's our decisions to take antibiotics or to drive our cars or whatever. So we have to believe that individuality is not going to lead to the sort of world uh, which I think we all want. And it's that balance between individuality and collective rationality, failure, the, the global commons issue, which is not new, uh, at all. I mean, we've been talking about global commons issues for thousands of years, but it's particularly acute because there's seven billion of us growing rapidly in income uh, and power. Okay, I have a question over here, please. Uh, thanks. Yeah, Narina Hertz. Um, Ian, I, re I really enjoyed your comments, and I 
you completely agree with your wishes and your recognition that the global problems that we now face, whether climate change, financial crisis, issues of national security, can only be addressed successfully collectively. Um, and yet, you know, as you pointed out depressingly, um, some of the major players are not coming to the table and, and are not seemingly even concerned with some of these issues. I mean, on the environment, Russia is completely absent. Um, on issues of um, global security, the BRICS are definitely not um, aligned with, with the rest of the world. And, um, and my concern is not only that, and I, I would like to have some thoughts from you on how to navigate what I think will continue to be a reality for the next few years. Um, my concern is that also in this time of economic real crisis globally, what we're seeing is not this move towards a, what I call a cooperative agenda and what you're calling a collective agenda, but we're actually seeing a retrenchment of nationalism, self-interest, and what I've called Gucci capitalism, um, where people are just now increasingly concerned about them and we're seeing it in the rise here of um, nationalist type politics um, xenophobia etc how do people like you and me who have this vision of how the world needs to be what do we do now well i, I mean I, you know, we obviously share the same views i mean there are a number of things i think we have to do one is you know i, I wrote divided nations because i'm trying to raise consciousness and awareness about this and that's what we do uh we try and amplify our own voices about these things uh the the the, the retreat into individuality as nations as individuals is a very understandable response to psychological stress to the crisis we feel that our lives are becoming more and more unpredictable and insecure. We see the financial crises. We see ourselves being buffeted by forces which come from outside our control. And so we believe that if we become smaller as countries, and there's, you know, countries are proliferating, it's over 202 now, growing all the time. Uh, if we become smaller as countries, if we raise our walls, if we, if we stop the migrants coming in, etc., somehow our lives will become more predictable and we'll have more control over our futures. That's just a complete myth, of course, but it's an understandable response. At the same time, it's telling us that actually all politics, and you know, we've got politicians here, all politics is local. So what we have to be able to say to people, I believe, is this is why your life in this local constituency requires a strong United Nations, a strong global institution, strong regulation, and we have to empower. Now, that does imply uh, that you give up. Like in football, um, you know, you have rules, and when the ref shows you the red card, you've got to be prepared to get off the field. If you don't want to do that, if you're the US and, and say, bugger that, I'm going to carry on doing what I want, you can't play the game. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've got to do is hold people accountable. Now what we can do, and I believe this is where the new technologies are incredibly helpful, we can increasingly name and shame, we can mobilize, and one of the tragedies and I think that's also sort of what the cascading individualism is we're not mobilizing. There was a campaign on climate, you might remember, a few years ago. There have been these massive amplifications of power on the Internet, but they get crowded out by newcomers. So, um, you know, in the end, I think it's down to us. We get the governments we deserve and we get the global governance system that we empower or don't empower. And divided nations are basically trying to block the system because they don't want anyone else to tell them what to do. 
Um, now, there are two versions of what's going to happen. One is we're going to only get this out of the ashes of a great fire, Phoenix-like, like after the Second World War we got Bretton Woods in the United Nations. That's one version. I just hope that our new technologies, our new knowledge, our new connectivity enables not only to see the edge of the cliff and be pushed over as we were in the World Wars, but actually to say, oh, finally, we're wise enough to create the means to stop disaster. But the jury's out. Okay. Um, so, um, thank, you. thank you very much. Sorry to interrupt <laughs> you there. Go. We need to bring this to a close now. Just before we do, I just... I mean, Damien, can you lift us up a little bit out of that uh, sort of gloom that... I, was, I thought I was going to cry, actually. I mean, but... Just oh, no, I was just thinking. Up. I was just thinking it was really interesting as you were saying all this, you know, about this idea of, sort of kind of rampant individualism, and and it, it just again made me think of Maggie, um, and, and 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 then I thought about her crying when she when she was hauled out in the car out of Downing Street, um, and I remember I remember at that point cheering and then crying and then feeling guilty for crying, and it was all very complicated. Um, so I, I don't know if that's the, the uplift that you're after, but um, certainly that's what I was thinking. That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Damien, Lucy. Ian, thank you very much. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.